So I hope uh, yesterday was a good day for for you, and uh, it's a teaching moment I think in the school retreat schedule to have uh, this change of change of routine. Saint Bernard said that the most important thing in the monastic life is uh, to keep doing the same thing regularly and the second most important thing is to change the routine so we have combined those two uh, insights so I hope that we come back uh, I certainly felt and I think many of you have that um, it's nice to be away and then it's nice to come back and uh, to know that you know, we are all there, the group is there. Um, so I think that it's important to reflect upon what the desert day can teach us about ourselves. And for some of you, maybe it was blissful, some of you, maybe it may be in purgatorial, uh, some of you, it was just a, a nice change. Um, and of course, all of that now is in the past. We can learn from it, but we're not living in it. So it's investing what we have learned uh, on the desert day into the next uh, two full days. And the next two full days, we should be 101% committed. We're not on the rundown. If uh, you were told you have two more days to live, what are you going to do? Live, live to the full, and uh, whatever that might mean for you. But so the, the shortness of time doesn't mean that we reduce the intensity of the living. Quite the reverse, uh, we can learn a lot more sometimes in the last stage of a process, or in the last days of one's, or seconds maybe even of one's life, than uh, in the years before or the days before. So. You think of it like that is my suggestion. Um, so, one of the wonderful things about the desert day is the sense of space, I think, and time. You have all this time. You can do with it as you like. You can stay and meditate here, as some, some people did, or you can go out and walk. And so, there's this use the time uh, as you, you use the time freely. And similarly, space. You can stay in the space or you can go out and walk in the hills of Italy. So space and time. So now we come back into this framework of life. Um, because if we lived every day was a desert day, it wouldn't be a desert day, would it? So we come back uh, into this frame, but we should bring that space with us. We should not be less spacious today than yesterday. And the time is as free today as it was yesterday. That's the integration, I think. And that's very much what meditating twice a day uh, is about, integrating this into daily life. So that's what we're doing, as it were, here. Just a couple of... Uh, uh, little pointers that might help us to, to 
to do that and to dive a little deeper in these, in these days. Um, no whispering. Okay. No whispering. Uh, that is not a nice thing to do to anybody else. And it's not good for you, believe me. <laughs> so, no whispering. And secondly, uh, we can be a little less theatrical and dramatic at mealtime. So, uh, we don't have to make little dramas out of, out of eating together and passing things to each other. So, some of you have noticed this, and some of you, it doesn't mean to say you can't be kind and uh, notice. It. But don't, don't sort of elevate a simple gesture of passing the oil or something uh, into some great self-sacrifice and demonstration of absolute love. Okay? So, it's just passing the oil. <laughs> Okay, so I think you know what I what I mean, and uh, will we'll, it will be easier for everyone? <laughs> this is no personal, no 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 personal uh, attacks <laughs> in that here too. These are all just expressions of kindness. I mean, we're a very nice group, actually, a very nice group of people. But. Okay, so what I'd like to. Uh, think about with you today and ask you to reflect on uh, is um, contemplative relationships. I think the first school retreat we had here uh, was with Eileen O'Hay, an American uh, sister who was a teacher in our community in the early days and helped to set up the school. And uh, Eileen O'Hay had a a phrase that I was struck by, moved by, which was, relationships are the sacred ground of our lives. The sacred ground of our lives, of our humanity. Existentially speaking, we are embedded in relationship from conception. We are relationship. We are the emergence of a relationship. Uh, you have, of course, the relationship of the two people involved in the conception. Uh, but then you also have you know, the egg and the seed, which are not particularly personal, just uh, biological forces. So relationship from the very beginning has uh, this strange um, reality, which is that it, we are embedded in it, we are this relationship. And of course, these relationships become more and more manifold and diverse and complex as we, as we grow. Um, there is something existential about it, as well as something intimate about it. Something personal, emotional, but also something that's just fact. You know, socio-economic or biological fact. So existentially, we can't imagine ourselves not to be in relationship in all dimensions, physical, social, emotional, ecological, cosmic. 
in whichever dimension of ourselves we see or know ourselves, we are in a network of relationships. And in the great dimension, where all things come together in unity, the spirit, what we call the spiritual dimension, it's not really a separate dimension because it, it embraces and enfolds all the others, but the spiritual dimension, which for us is in Christ, in whom all things are one. In Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, male or female, rich nor poor, and we are all one in Christ. That's the spiritual dimension. The question is, what kind of relationships do we enjoy? <coughs> how loving are they? How truthful? How just? How faithful? And it's in this question that we have to do work, <coughs> deep work, throughout our lives. And meditation, we discover at some point, hopefully at eight years old, we discover that this is at the heart of this work, of being human. I asked a little girl once, uh, you know, do you meditate other times? And she said, yes, I meditate at home. And I said, oh, when do you meditate? She thought for a moment and then she said, I always meditate when I have a fight with my sister. I mean, what a... Imagine if we could get the members of the UN to put that into practice. Every time you have a fight, or you launch a nuclear warhead, you, um, you sit down and meditate. Because you know that that feeling of not being in a good relationship is, is, is not good. It's not a good feeling. It's not, in itself good, and therefore you want to change it. And to see meditation as a way of, of, of healing, uh, blessing, uh, deepening uh, our relationships is, is a great grace, as we all know. And of course, it's in this area of our relationships that we first notice the effects of meditation. Many people today feel very lonely. It's a mark of our Western affluent culture. And uh, suicide, growing rates of suicide, especially among the young, <coughs> is maybe a manifestation of that. The country with the lowest suicide rate in the world is the one where you would think they would have the highest, which is um, Haiti. Haiti is, a, is not the place where you would want to be reincarnated. Uh, not only is it subject to natural disasters, it's a place that is riddled with corruption and uh, political, social, economic corruption and so on. And yet, one is amazed at the sense of, I'm not, I'm not in any way um, idealizing it, but the sense of joy and of connectedness connection, relationship. People come together like they do on small islands when there's a tragedy in one family. The whole community 
uh, comes together for that family, instinctively, intuitively. But many people today don't feel that. They feel lonely, they live alone, and they are... Um, they feel that... Um, that uh, just as, as they may feel that their external or, or their relationships are failing, they're not what they would like them to be. They want other kinds of relationships. They're looking for someone. And also that their relationship with themselves can be very damaged. Needs a lot of strengthening. This is why I think we need a contemplative approach to relationships. This is a, these are only a few ideas. But Online dating, I was talking to somebody the other day who is dealing with that, as many, many millions do, I suppose, now, uh, uh, with online dating. And I'm not, uh, I, I don't know, I've never done it, but I don't think it's so different from, you know, going to the village dance in the village hall on a Saturday night, you know, and looking around and waiting for that spark uh, to, to happen and, uh, you know. But it is different at the same time. I mean, there's a randomness about all marriages, or many of you who are married, well, you could see a randomness in it as well. And, um, but there's a combination of randomness and choice and, of course, mystery of, of relationship and destiny. But, um, as in any path of life, but um, anyway, there is something a little different, though, I think, about uh, online dating. But somebody said to me the other day, so many people are really weird. <laughs> and she said, she said, you know, I thought I'm a bit weird, but she said, my God, you know, you're not so... Anyway, so uh, with the added complexities of modern technology, the whole idea of what it is to be human and how to be in relationship and find relationship is affected. It's not, you know, I would say, I don't think we should over-exaggerate the, uh, the, the change, but it has certainly been affected by it. It's much more easy to objectify the other uh, online than it is, you know, in, in a uh, village dance. Uh, it's... Um, Maybe easier to expect your fantasy to be real, your hopes, your fantasy hopes to be real after a certain time. And there's also the danger of becoming more isolated when things don't work out as you hoped. So these are important, I think, aspects of our techno culture, but I think the fundamental issues are the same. Relationship, as we use the word, began uh, to have the current sense in the 17th century. Today, if you say uh, X and Y, they're in a relationship. Well, that means one thing. You know? It means that probably a sexual relationship. which says something about our, our culture. Um, and in a way, it shows how our understanding of relationship has 
contracted. It's become more intimate in one sense, because we talk about, you know, sexual relationships that may not last very long. But we've also become less resilient, less, um, less able to persevere, to see relationship as the space, remember the sacred ground, or the space in which we and others and our own particular stories can become integrated. And therefore, with that limit, more limited, I'd say less contemplative, understanding of relationship, it's more likely for the relationship to end when the erotic element has passed into a less dominant role. It doesn't mean that the erotic element um, ceases to exist altogether, but it uh, passes after time into a less dominant role. At the beginning, it is the power of attraction, the great power of attraction in nature. And um, it's interesting, you know, uh, theologically speaking, that Pope Benedict's first uh, encyclical, um, I don't think he's a great expert on marriage, but he, he, it was on eros, and on the need for the Christ, Christian theologian to keep the element of eros in our understanding of God. A wonderful point to make at an intellectual level, but a very important point for us to make in understanding God. God is, uh, Nietzsche said, you know, the Christians found eros as a, as a god and then turned it into a devil. And there's something, something about that too. We sex sexually obsessed Christian mentality generally. But uh, theologically speaking, the tradition is very clear that this, there are different aspects, dimensions and forms of love and expressions of love. Eros, friendship and agape, love of God. And these are not, uh, we don't sort of graduate from one to the other. The, the growth is a integrated growth. We remain, uh, even though they may change their expressions over time, as the relationships deepen and grow, nevertheless, all, the, all of these elements have to be there. But one of the challenges for the contemporary person, I think, is that because of our limited, more limited understanding of what relationships are for, and why we have them, and how we live them, then the danger is, is that when this eros element, which is the great power of attraction and the ability to play together, it's like children, you know, meeting and discovering that they can play together. Well, when adults do that, that's, you know, it takes many different kinds of games. And, uh, but when that uh, initial power of attraction and union begins to evolve, then the people can panic and they feel the relationship is over. So we need a contemplative understanding of relationships. And uh, essentially a relationship, the word actually comes from relatio, Latin, which means to bring back, to relate, to replace, 
to put back into place uh, or to restore the relationships in our lives from the very beginning are forces, fields of life, of consciousness in which uh, we are brought back to what? To wholeness. But as we are growing from that little first embryo into complex human beings, uh, that, that process uh, of, of wholeness can be wounded and damaged, it has to be damaged. We have to experience a fraction, breaking, loss. We have to, otherwise we wouldn't be able to move on. That's why we break the host at the, at the culmination of the Eucharist. I mean, this is the moment of communion. What do we do? We break the host. So that the, the bread can be broken into pieces and we can share it and be brought back into relationship uh, at a deeper level, into communion. So, relationships then are experiences of healing in themselves. Healing and uh, extension. Now this suggests the essential human need for companionship. It's not good for man to be alone, God said. As we grow up, especially in this culture, where we've struggled to balance the human with technology, with all the tools that we have created, all the toys we've created, um, we in this culture especially, we feel the pangs of isolation. The breaks, the, the, the fractions, the divisions, the loss of wholeness in our life, which are inevitable and necessary, can really break us. This is extreme in adolescence, when we first discover that our family relationships are terrible, <laughs> and our parents are awful. And, uh, you know, we, we, we have to go through that uh, breaking or remaking of the relationship with our family as if we want to make relationships of our own. It's good for a man or a woman to leave their parents and go out on their own. But this extreme isolation that can happen in contemporary culture, and it's... Uh, it is almost impossible to imagine for people from traditional cultures how miserable we make ourselves. Uh, this extreme isolation and unbearable loneliness characterizes an adolescent psycho uh, culture, um, and there are many of them around. Maybe it's part of what modern culture is, but I think. You can't help but see it in some parts of the world, and in the US. This is, of course, a huge society, a huge culture with many aspects, but there is, it, is, it is, sets the tone in many ways for popular culture. And uh, it is always the psychological profile of the long line of perpetrators of mass killings that we come across, I mean, we've got used to and even of terrorism. 
the totally isolated individual. And shockingly, these isolated individuals who then explode under the pressure of this isolation and loneliness are known to many people and their families or friends or neighbors will say, I, I, I can't believe it. He seems such a, always men, unfortunately. Uh, always seemed so normal. Well, it seemed a bit strange, but you know, no stranger than anybody else. <laughs> so, just to say, we, there are there is a particular need, I think, today for us to revisit the meaning of the relationship itself and how we experience it. And this is what I mean by contemplative approach. The word relation. Uh, also has the sense of telling, reporting. So you relate <coughs> the news, you, you relate the story of your life at deepening levels of openness and trust to the people that you are in relationship with. Nurturing both the relationship that you have with the other and your own self-knowledge at the same time. Because by relating your story, the story that you are, to another person in trust and love, makes you more conscious. And uh, that's of course at the basis of our modern understanding of therapy, psychotherapy. <coughs> so what is a contemplative understanding of relationship? in the age of Facebook and internet dating and, and the frequency of long-term relationships that don't work out low, or low levels of commitment altogether. People now, the young, younger generation will often be surprisingly able to live with that possibility of it not lasting even uh, for life. So, I think that's certainly one aspect of a contemplative approach to a relationship is that there is this hope, should be an essential human hope, of having, developing, growing relationships that are lifelong, that may change their form, will change their form, but are lifelong. And uh, if we don't have that, I think we suffer uh, isolation. And we, s we console ourselves for that isolation with higher doses of fantasy. Because relationships are so important to us throughout our lives, we naturally see them as our relationships. The relationships in our lives, or the relationships that form what we call my life at this moment in time, are my relationships. Well, in a way, of course, they are, because they are unique, or unique combination of relationships. But, at the, on the other hand, any relationship 
that is truly growing is has is committed to a process of dispossession of letting go of mine So relationships in which we come to possess, or try to possess, to control, <coughs> to judge, to be jealous, to be violent. You see stories of that every day on the newspaper, or you see a terrible story again, usually men who, who uh, you know, become violent towards their wives or families <coughs> because it's over, and they won't let it be over because it's mine. This is the dark side of Eros. Eros has not been allowed to evolve. So there are either these possessive possessions we have, my relationships, or they become fields of growth. Fields, spiritual fields, in fact, spaces, time dimensions in our lives that may expend over many years, it may be short as well, in which we are faithful within that field, within that relationship. We are unconditionally, as far as we can, faithful, non-possessive, loving in a mature, not parental or childlike or childish way, but loving, not turning the other person into a child or into a parent, and in which we are growing beyond ourselves in self-knowledge. So this contemplative understanding of relationship, I would say, we don't see it primarily as fulfilling me. <laughs> that's what, you know, that's the danger. Of course, relationships do fulfill us in the same way that meditation gives us a, a, a lot. But if that's the primary motivation, then we are not actually going to realize its potential. We are limiting ourselves. So the mature understanding, the contemplative understanding of relationship is more, not that it is there to fulfill me, but it's a place, it's a temple space in my life. Now, if you have the, let's say, the more egocentric attitude towards relationship, then your relationships, and if you have a lot of them, and you you have relationships at work, you have uh, family relationships, and then you may find that you have a conflict of intimate relationships, you fall in love with two different people at the same time. These become complex. And when they become complex, we become unhappy. And our capacity for relationship diminishes. The relationships then become problems rather than the sacred ground. 
But if we, if we can learn this contemplative understanding of relationship, it's not possessive, it's not there just to fulfill me. And it may fulfill me, but in a completely different way from what I expect. I may end up being a carer for this person for the rest of my life, or the rest of their life. But that is fulfilling in its own way. It's not what I imagined, it's not what I, what, what I signed up for. But, I'm, but I can I, uh, experience uh, you know, everything I could have hoped for in this, in this form of the relationship. So we have to see the relationship then as, a, as not as a complex complexity, but as a temple space. And then we're not there in that space of, of that relationship to worship the other person. To worship the other person, they will turn, uh, they become an idol and, and then you you know, that creates its own whole world of complexities and codependence. So, we have to be in that temple space of the relationship, worshipping with them, worshipping God, and being united with that other person in a unique way, in a surprising way that, that allows all your differences to be integrated but worshipping the great other, the great third, God. It's where, in a relationship of two people, where they cannot transcend themselves in the relationship and transcend together, there's going to be problems or a sense of failure, or a sense of dissatisfaction. But if they do, then they grow in God. And what is God except the whole big relationship that is reality? We exist, we live and move and have our being in God anyway. It's just a question of whether we see it and live it or not. And all relationships change as we grow in self-knowledge. That's a risk. Because growing in self-knowledge is solitary. Relationships uh, demand by their very life that they should allow each person in the relationship, this is true of communities, of course, as well as marriages, marriages become communities after a while, then they, they, they demand that each person in the relationship can, can grow and must grow in their own unique way. And each person must give the other space for that to happen. And that's the adventure, that's the unpredictability of it. Because you don't know, you know, as you grow in self-knowledge, you, you, uh, you change. 
is a, you may find that your, you know, your husband or wife likes to come home in the evening and watch television. It's the evening entertainment. And then after you've been meditating for a couple of years, you think, I don't want to do this anymore. It's just deadening, boring. And uh, I'd like to go and read or do something else. And then the, 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 the television uh, watcher says, Ah, but why don't you want to be with me? You know? It's just so nice just to sit together in the evening and watch TV and eat some chips. <laughs> you know, it's really nice. I said, you know, why are you moving away from me, all this meditation? So, you know, you have to talk. The greatest risk is not growing in self-knowledge, because that begins to starve the relationship of oxygen. It may mean that you stay together, but you grow apart. And that happens in monasteries as well as in marriages. So this, how do we develop this contemplative approach to relationships? I think it has to begin very early. And children are still learning what relationship means as they play in the playground, as they fight with their sister, as they uh, begin to go out, go out on a date. So the earlier the better, and there's nothing as, like meditation, to awaken in us this contemplative realism and this contemplative hope. It's both realism and hope about our potential. And the reason, of course, as we all know, is that the first level of relationship we have to work with, work on, and that meditation works on immediately is the relationship with ourselves. We'll just end with the words of Jesus from the uh, Gospel of John where he speaks about friendship Perhaps the, um, the meaning of friendship is something that a contemplative approach to a relationship will uh, make us more conscious of. And we remember the, that all relationship is essentially friendly. we see it as a whole. So Jesus said, You call me Lord and Master, and rightly so, for that is what I am. But I call you friends. I do not call you servants anymore, I call you friends, because I have shared with you everything I have learned from my Father.